John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc there are few moments in film that no matter how many times i see them are guaranteed to make me cry that incredible montage and up Rocky Balboa shouting Yo Adrian from the ring, and Harry Bailey raising a glass and saying to my brother George, the richest man in town. But few moments hit me as hard or as unexpectedly as the last eight words in Field of Dreams. Those words sum up so much about fathers and sons, about regret and reconciliation, and perhaps most importantly, about the profound importance of simple human connection. So if you haven't seen the film and are wondering what eight words could possibly encompass all of that, your only choice is to go on a journey to Iowa, care of cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream Field of Dreams along with every other film we've ever reviewed. Then come back on Friday to hear John and I talk about a movie that never fails to bring both of us to tears, the warm, magical, and deeply moving Field of Dreams. I'm 36 years old, I love my family, I love baseball, and I'm about to become a farmer. But until I heard the voice, I'd never done a crazy thing in my whole life. Hello and welcome. 
welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Rocco. I'm a voiceover artist, writer, producer, and host uh, on numerous podcasts and shows here on the Outlaw Nation channel. Of course, one of the co-hosts of this great podcast. The Cinephiles, I and I have today an industrial size a basket of tissues as we confront our film and dissect and analyze and revisit our film for this episode. Yeah, and what you know, what we what a lot of America would normally be doing right about now is heading off to the ballpark because we're right around when yeah. opening day of the baseball season should have been. Yeah, yeah, and yet that's not happening this year. Yeah, and so we 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 thought we would visit what is a I would say one of the great baseball movies of all time. And B is the one where they're not real. It's not really about playing games. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most unique sports movies to ever come across uh, film and that people gravitate to and love. Yet the sport is almost irrelevant. The sport is just the entryway into this relationship between a father and son that has to be repaired and between people who've walked away from their dreams or walked away from what they did well uh, and bringing them back to that time again or bringing them back to that dream again uh, to become whole again. So it's a sports movie without any real big sports achievement in the movie. So really unique in its own way. And the movie we're talking about, of course, is Field of Dreams. And I think, uh, John, you just hit on something that's really important is that even in the in the really good sports movies, even when the sport is great, they're always about something else. Yeah. Whether right. it's Rocky or Raging Bull or The Natural or there's always bigger themes that are going on within the sports movie and character things. It's not just about the sports. Yeah. But in this case, in the film Field of Dreams, I mean, it's about I think this is a, a really special movie in the way mm -hmm. only a few movies we've done are. This just really, yeah. it moves me in a very unique way. So, and it moves us depending on where we are in our lives. You know, um, when, you, when I first saw this movie, I'm Ray Kinsella. Sure. Now, as I'm crossing the age that I'm crossing, I'm Terrence Mann. Or I'm the other people who are, or I'm maybe even Ray's dad, where I'm remembering what it's like to kind of have that interaction and want to remember reliving the dream of being 20 years old and thinking about what could have been and things of that nature. So it's a, it, it offers so much to you at different times in your life, depending on how your relationships are. That's the gift of this movie, that you can progress through it throughout your entire life. And maybe by the end of your life, you're Archibald Graham, you're Moonlight Graham, and right. you understand his idea that you get you got that half an inning and you wish you could have just seen what you could have done at the the highest level of your uh, the profession you really wanted to do with your life, you know. So the film speaks to so many different stages of our lives uh, in, in in incredible ways. That's the one thing I was thinking about a lot because I'm the same thing. When I first saw this, of course, I was Ray. The thing I started yeah. thinking about a lot watching this, and it didn't make me feel that good, was that I'm dad. You know, because huh. I am a dad now. Um. So, how did you first come to this film? Oh man, I ran to see this film with my best friend Maurice. Uh, I was we were knee deep into baseball all during the '80s and into the '90s. Of course, uh, I was a Yankees fan; he was a, a Red Sox fan, and so <laughs> there was constant battles between us. But we always loved the game. And when this trailer dropped, I remember this is one that I uh, reached out to him, and I was like, "We got to go see this. We got to go see this." And I remember us going to see it on a Saturday afternoon there in Dale City together, and just 
madly in love with the movie from beginning to end it is dripping it is soaked in baseball mythology and lore uh and the past uh but also of course as we just said also uh steeped in this idea of a father and son kind of closing the loop uh on their relationship or fixing their relationship in a mystical way in a fantastical way um yeah so that's uh, and i remember just walking out of this thing going this is incredible it's just incredible um, I'm the same thing. I saw it in the theater. And we have to remember, this is Pete Costner. You know? Yes. He shows up. Oh. You know, he had he had his wrists exposed in The Big Chill, shows up with a great, like, <laughs> star-making role in Silverado. Then we have Bull yeah. Durham, which is fantastic. And now we come right into this movie. And I loved Kevin Costner at this time. And it's, it's really funny. Like, I, as you know, am not a big sports guy. I watch a little bit of mm. Cal football and Cal basketball. My dad was a huge baseball fan, which is something we'll talk about as we go. But I was mm-hmm. never a big baseball guy, but I love baseball movies. Baseball movies yeah. are some of my favorite films. And so, of course, I ran out to see this in the theater. And, of course, I cried. And, of course, this is a movie I watched over and over and over again. I've seen this movie a whole bunch of times. Um, and yeah. uh, a little bit of pre-production. Of course, this starts with the book, Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella. Same name as the character in the uh, in the movie. And it's funny. I've, mm-hmm. I've read the book. I read it again just last week. Just it's a short book. Is this is, you know, there's so many things where it's like, oh, the movie's not as good as the book. And then <laughs> there are a few where I think the book and the, where the movie is better. This is mm-hmm. absolutely a case where the movie is better. No disrespect to the oh, yeah. book. It's a nice lyrical book. But I think the movie takes it to a whole other level. Um, And our director is Phil Alden Robinson, who is a guy who doesn't make a whole lot of movies. Here he makes one of the great baseball movies of all time. And then he makes Sneakers after that, which I totally like. Totally likable movie. And then there's really nothing there. And it's so strange Mm -hmm. to me, a guy, because this is is something we just talked about with Hunt for Red October with John McTiernan, is someone Mm -hmm. who's so at the top of their game, right at the same era, and then you know, make some other stuff. And I just go like, well, yeah. what happened exactly? Um, and he, yeah. and maybe he just never got more chances, but he read the book. So he says that he stayed up all night and read the book in one night. And he's like, this is going to make a great movie. And he was terrified of what Bill Kinsella, the author of the book would think when he was trying to turn it into a screenplay. So he wrote him mm. a long loving letter, really nervous, really scared, saying, look, I'm going to take this really seriously. I love the book. There will have to be some changes, but I'm really, I promise I'm going to take real good care of it. And he gets back a postcard, not even a letter. (laughs) And all it says on the postcard is, do whatever you have to do to make it a movie. Love, Will. And the, the biggest and, the biggest <laughs> and most important change from the book to the movie is that in the book, the Terrence Mann character is actually J.D. Salinger, wow. the great author, the right. great reclusive author. And so he and Ray Kinsella really does kidnap the J.D. Salinger and take him to a game and take him on all this story. And they knew when they were making the movie, it couldn't be J.D. Salinger. That was the that was the right. the, the biggest change. He brings the script to uh, Lawrence and Charles Gordon, who are big producers, and they take it out and nobody wants it. We've heard this over and over and over again. They shopped it and they shopped it and they shopped it. And finally, they make a a, a sale. And the first person they wanted to play the part was Kevin Costner. 
And they said, right. he just did Bull Durham. I think he's in the middle of shooting Bull Durham at the time. There's no way he's going to do two baseball movies in a row. So they didn't shot, take it to him. And they took it yeah. everywhere else. And every other star turned this thing down. And then Costner hears about it and says, well, I have to do this movie. And his agent said, you can't do two baseball movies in a row. And all his friends <laughs> said, you can't do two baseball movies in a row. And he had booked another gig. I don't know what the other movie was. And he pushed the other movie and delayed it in order for him to make Field of Dreams. That's how much he cared about this wow. film. Um, that's, uh, that's strength. That's power in Hollywood. Right. If you push another movie, if you want me, you're going to have to wait. Wow, yeah. that's power. Well, and it's, it's, not, it's not like he is really – I mean, this is 1989 – I think, mm -hmm. you know, this is, it's, he's only been a known star for two or three years. I mean, he wasn't yeah, a, yeah. huge. And yet, it's funny, I, he is one of those people, I have, I have more complicated feelings about him now as an actor oh, than yeah. I did then. Mm -hmm. But he is definitely a person who knows what he wants and yep. goes after it. Um, yeah. And that, sir, is all the pre-production I have on this film. <laughs> okay. Would you like to go off to Iowa and enter the world of Field of Dreams? Let's go to heaven, man. Let's do it. <laughs> we, we start with that beautiful James Horner score. He turned this movie down originally, too. He said, I don't huh. think I want, I don't see that I have anything to bring to this film. And then finally they convinced him to watch a rough cut. And it's when he watched the rough cut that he said, oh, I want to do this. Yeah. Uh, the, score is, the score is amazing. And what we start with is this, it's like Citizen Kane. We start with like a newsreel. My father's name was John Kinsella. It's an Irish name. He was born in North Dakota in 1896 and never saw a big city until he came back from France in 1918. He settled in Chicago where he quickly learned to live and die with the White Sox. Died a little when they lost the 1919 World Series. Died a lot the following summer when eight members of the team were accused of throwing that series. Which is something that's going to come up a lot. Of course, this is what Eight Men Out is based on. This is the uh, fixing of the 1919 World Series and the Chicago White Sox throwing the game. Yeah, and uh, Shoeless Joe is important for this whole history because Shoeless Joe was the one guy that couldn't prove uh, whose play dipped during this uh, uh, situation with the what they're called now, the Black Sox. Yeah. And uh, um, Joe was the one, he took the money, but, and you'll find out, and we'll, of course, uh, Kevin Costner says this later when he's talking to his daughter, that he, he, they couldn't prove that he played terribly on purpose so that the other team could win. I think it was the Cincinnati Reds who beat them in that series. But so much of that particular incident is a, uh, I don't know, it was a benchmark in the history of baseball with Kennesaw Mountain. Landis was the commissioner of baseball at that time. He's the one that passes these rules, passes this down. All these people are banned from playing baseball for the rest of their life, for throwing a World Series. The owners are angry. All of this stuff that happened at this time. And it was because the players were getting paid literally peanuts to play yeah. the game. Well, maybe not literally, but figuratively <laughs> peanuts to play the game. And this is before you have, you know, free agency and all this. Like some of the younger listeners may not understand this. This was a time when the owners legitimately owned you and could pay you whatever they felt they could pay you. And baseball would never do anything about it. And it took a long time until like the 60s or the 70s. And Kurt Flood is the name you really want to think about where things started to change, where players could start dictating what they wanted to pay, pay 
get paid and what teams they wanted to play on. And those, so this is way back then when all this stuff was going down. And this is such an essential part of baseball and the history of baseball. And Shoeless Joe Jackson's always been seen as a sympathetic character in this whole uh, sordid drama that happened in 1919. Well, and this is the, the one of the interesting things that I think this movie does better than any other sports movie that I know of is that baseball is uniquely tied into the American mythos. You know, yeah. it's this oh yeah pastoral game. It's this game that grows up at the time that America grows up, and you can track it through things like the 1919 World Series, through things like Jackie Robinson or Babe Ruth or the mm. history of America moving forward right along with the history yeah. of baseball. And if you watch were to watch the Ken Burns documentary, which I haven't seen in a long time, but is brilliant, it really shows us how this works. And we're actually going to see that mythical history of baseball through the lives of this father and son. He played in the minors for a year or two, but nothing ever came of it. Moved to Brooklyn in 35, married mom in 38, and was already an old man working at the Naval Yards when I was born in 1952. Instead of raising him on nursery rhymes, he raised him on Babe Ruth and on Shoeless Joe Mm -hmm. Jackson and on Ty Cobb, and those were the stories you grew up with. And then you get to this moment where you get rebellion. Dad was a Yankees fan then, so of course I rooted for Brooklyn. But in 58, the Dodgers moved away, so we had to find other things to fight about. We did. <laughs> it's that father and son stuff that we're planting right at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is as he talks about the Dodgers leaving New York and going to California, what's the next thing that he does? He picks the college as far away from his dad as he can get, and really as far yeah. as away culturally, which is he goes to... UC Berkeley, my alma mater, in the middle of the 60s. And I love this line where he says, Officially my major was English, but really it was the 60s. I marched, I smoked some grass, I tried to like sitar music. (laughs) And this whole kind of hippie part, is this is not in the book. Mm -hmm. Part of it is the book is maybe 10 years older, so the characters are all 10 years older. But this hippie rebellion thing that we go into, and that his relationship with... Annie, who's Amy Madigan, happens through the, you know, the 60s free speech movement. The only thing we had in common was that she came from Iowa, and I had once heard of Iowa. After graduation, we moved to the Midwest and stayed with her family as long as we could. Almost a full afternoon. (laughs) Well, and this is something that also kind of lays the groundwork for what we'll see later is this division within the heartland of like perceptions and point of views about certain situations. What he makes that quick comment about the afternoon situation, like him being from a completely different area and going into uh, meet her, her Iowa family and the divisions there in uh, points of views and perspectives. But I think what's important too is this is a brilliant decision to set this in the sixties. Uh, I mean, set the uh, the uh, the the events that he's talking about in the sixties because if you look at it, it's nice. 1989. This is when the boomers are kind of like in this place where they are looking back on their lives and look and 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 kind of you know we've got therapy, we've got uh, self analysis going on. The height of this stuff through the 80s, all this stuff starting to become something people do. So this is a movie that will brilliantly touch on uh, where a majority of the audience might be emotionally in their worlds, reflecting, looking back, uh, you know, kind of maybe trying to repair relationships with family relation with family members, things of that nature. So to add that element to the movie and not, and because it's not in the book, as you said, others brilliant. It makes you care about 
the movie even more. And I find similarities in that my dad and I certainly battled about so many things. Um, I also chose a college as far away from them as I could find. I almost went to Montana State to be wow. even farther away. Uh, and, and also my dad was a Cowboys fan. I grew up a Redskins fan. So there's like the clashing of, of that as well throughout the, our history. So that was always the thing. My dad did. I never thought he understood me. He was 35 when he had me. By the time I come of age, he's in his late 40s and he's been working so hard and haggard and he's got a bitterness about the world. So there's so much about what Ray talks about in the movie that I that I find universal. And so many people probably did watching the movie uh, from their own experiences and their own relationships with their fathers. 100%. And I think there's something that Phil Robinson understood that most people don't really think about, which is you think about, okay, the Midwestern, Iowa farmer, salt of the earth, probably conservative. That is, is the polar opposite of the Berkeley radical hippie of the 60s. Right. And yet right. there's a part of the, you know, the hippie ethos, which is going back to the land, which is the commune, yeah. which is working the earth, having a natural life, getting out of the city. And so in that sense, yeah. there is a connection here. It's not necessarily a connection with her Iowa family, but it is yeah, about, yeah. you know, that they're going to do this thing that's very against the city urban fast-paced world that they've chosen this thing she convinces him to buy a farm we hear they get married and his dad died right before he could meet his wife never met his daughter yeah and then he says this thing this is how this montage ends i'm 36 years old i love my family i love baseball and i'm about to become a farmer but until i heard the voice I'd never done a crazy thing in my whole life. It's a great setup for a film. It is. And then we're in the cornfield. And it's magic hour, which is we've talked about before. This is shooting right around sunset or sunrise. It's a very small space of time. They, we call it magic hour. It's not an hour. Maybe 10, 15 minutes, which means you have <laughs> to get like everything set up until the light is just perfect and you shoot. And all of these scenes that we see at magic hour, which there are a lot, they didn't shoot any of them in one day. It was shoot wow. all the other stuff during the day. And as it got close to sunset, they would start setting up these magic hour shots. And if it was eight or nine shots for a scene, they would do one or two. And the next night they would do the next one or two. And the next night, the next one or two until they got the whole scene and they move on to the next one. And you as an actor, how do you feel that would be yeah. to just do little pieces of a scene over weeks? How aggravating that must be overall you know and test your dedication to the craft to the to the overall piece yeah uh, in that situation so yeah definitely uh, would be a bit uh, exhausting to say the least and it's very tough on the crew it's very tough on the director and mm. the fact that this guy i mean this is really his first real feature has the yeah the strength to chutzpah. make these kind of the, the, yeah exactly chutzpah and so kevin <laughs> is in the cornfield he's walking through the corn we hear the music it's mystical and then we hear the voice. If you build it, you will come. Yeah. And Kevin turns around, smiles, and the voice repeats. And again, now he's doing the sort of, who's messing with me? <laughs> and he calls up to his wife and his daughter to ask if they've heard it. They haven't heard it. And, and then I love this moment where he actually just walks out of frame, and we're just looking at corn, <laughs> and then we hear... If And then he runs back into frame, looking around. You must have heard that, you right? You must have heard that. <laughs> no, nope, didn't hear that. 
Um, and he, he walks up to the house and he goes into the house. And one thing about this house, this house is really there. It's really on location. And they really, yep. for the most part, everything that you see inside the house was shot in this house, which is really mm. hard to do. And they actually had to yeah. rebuild the interiors of the house. They had to raise the ceiling so they could hang lights. They had to flatten out the floor because you need an even floor to run dollies on. They changed where the windows wow. are. You know, there was a lot of work to make this house work, but they wanted to shoot right next to the cornfield. They did not want to be on a stage. Wow. And he tells Annie about his, the voice that he heard. <laughs> and this is Amy Madigan. I love her in this movie. Hey, are you really hearing voices? Just one. What did it say? If you build it, he will come. If you build what, who will come? He didn't say. Ugh. I hate it when that happens. Me too. <laughs> Literally, the definition of a spitfire. The human definition of a spitfire is Amy Madigan, and she's incredible in the movie. And what's so cool about her is that she never reacts the way we think she's going to react. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. she accepts this. I mean, she resists it lots. Yeah. But she's also sort of just fun and joking with him about this. And yeah. it's the middle of the night. And there's a storm brewing. And that's just a storm that happened to happen, a summer storm when they were shooting in Iowa. Next morning, what TV, what movie is his daughter Karen watching? It's Harvey with Jimmy yeah, Stewart. Harvey. It's a perfect, perfect choice for films. Um, I haven't seen that one in forever. Have you seen it? Yeah, I saw it last year on TCM. Uh, uh, so good. Oh, good. Still holds up. Still very sweet. Still very funny. Trust me, Karen, it is not funny. The man is sick. <laughs> Annie asks him to take the daughter to school, and she has. Hey, what if the voice calls while you're gone? Take a message. <laughs> but I think this is brilliant, Steve. They, what you just said earlier, right? The idea that they're, they're, they're being light with the voice. They're being playful with the voice. Because then it doesn't let the audience start to be like, oh, this guy is crazy or why should I care about this guy? By being playful about it, it kind of immediately puts you on his side and her side so that when they start to make these really kind of from the outside insane decisions, um, you're kind of going along with it, hoping it works hoping it does work out for them and they get the answers that they're looking for and whatever. And, and she's the perfect choice for it because, like you said, if they met at Berkeley, then she must have been like, you know, all about that free speech and free love and free... And we see her later when she has her battle with Beulah in the, in the yeah. uh, meeting. Like, she is very much a hippie, liberal person from that time. So for her, who probably experimented with the drugs and the weed and all of that from that time. So for her, this is like another experience, you know, like when she says to Terrence Mann later on the film, far out, you know, so right. she's in that place that this is her. She's actually purely in that existence and that point of view and that perspective on the world. If this is another wife, this is a whole nother movie. Totally. This is a whole different movie. Like if Beulah's his wife, this is a whole other movie. She's left him. She's taken the kid. It's, it's He's all by himself in the field with his baseball field. But because she's supportive and she's understanding, it helps us to feel that way about him as well. It's funny, having, having grown up in the Bay Area and gone to school in Berkeley, mm. and I grew up in the Bay Area in the 70s, and now, as a person who has some of my closest friends, including my wife, go to Burning Man every year, there's yeah. a, a thing of, one of the things that the 60s was about was that we've been handed a structure of how life is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And in the 60s, they say, well, why? Why do we have to do it that way? 
these are all kind of arbitrary rules. Yeah. And I think Annie is a person who comes out of that. And yes, they choose to own a farm, but they don't choose to own a farm because they're conforming to something about what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. They're doing it because that's what they want to do. And so, okay, a voice is talking to you. Okay. You know, yeah. that's, you know, there's no shame in that. There's no moment of shame yeah. until this next scene where we go to the feed store, which by the or the seed store, by the way, this looks nothing like what the seed store in Iowa would look like. They went to the real one and it looks like a department store. <laughs> he went, well, I don't want that. <laughs> and so they built one in like a warehouse that looks nothing like what an actual one would look like because it looked more like what was in his head of what a movie should look like. And I love the way Kevin is kind of dealing with this. He says, hey, you know, I hear sometimes people hear voices in the, out when they're working in the farm, <laughs> in the fields, and they go, you're hearing voices? No, no. I just, I heard that that might happen. Who's hearing voices? Ray is. Not in the fields. No, I'm not. <laughs> one, one thing about this that we, we'll talk about throughout is that there's so many things you don't think about when you're making a movie. And in this one, one that we don't really think about is the corn. Yeah. Which is, in general, movies are shot out of sequence. So you might shoot the middle, and then you shoot something from the end, and you shoot something from the beginning. Corn grows in sequence. And mm -hmm. they needed the corn to be at certain heights at certain times. So it had to be above the characters' heads when they walk through the corn and disappear, which means that the schedule was actually built on how tall is the corn going to be. <laughs> and this year, when they did this film, there was a huge drought. Oh, wow. And, so, and it was super hot. And so there was trouble growing the corn, and the corn wasn't going to get tall enough, as tall as they needed. And so they said, well, let's just ship in a whole bunch of water to water the corn to get it to grow. And all the farmers are going, no, you can't do that can't do that it's not going to work it's not going to work it's not going to work and i don't obviously i don't understand agriculture that's right. not my area of specialties <laughs> and what, but what finally came out was they said you mean if we put a bunch of water on it it's not going to grow and they're like well yeah it'll grow but you won't get any corn and they said well we don't need corn <laughs> we're not actually going to eat it we just need it to be tall and they went oh well, i guess it'll work for it to grow to be tall but you won't get yeah, corn. And so bring in the water. So they ship in all this water to, to, to grow the corn. If you build it, he will come. All right, that's it. Huh? Who the... Who are you, huh? What do you want from me? And then he turns, and there, appearing in the cornfield, emerges a baseball diamond. Right. Lit up by the lights. Right. And now he knows. You don't suppose this is like acid flashback or anything, do you? I never took acid. Well, maybe it will someday. It's like a flash forward. <laughs> That's a great joke. <laughs> By the way, another thing they struggled with, this was shot day for night, which means they really shot it in the daytime. They blacked out all the windows. And because the reason mm -hmm. they did this is because they have a little girl. And kids can only wow. work certain hours, so they couldn't do a night shoot with her because they yeah. wouldn't be able to keep her up that late. I think I know what if you build it, he will come means. Ooh, why do I not think this is such a good thing? I think it means that if I build a baseball field out there that shoeless Joe Jackson will get to come back and play ball again. <laughs> I mean, just, just, you have to laugh at the concept of it all, and not in a negative way, just the, the insanity of it all. The idea that you're going to build a baseball field. And, and this is a question I have now when I watch the movie, is how much of this is him in his head 
And how much of this is the voice telling him to do it? And I wonder where the line is, you know? And I, that's what I love about the film. It leaves you with questions that are fun to explore and consider. But this idea that shoeless Joe Jackson, out of the blues, he's like, he gets all of this in his head and says, I think this is the reason. And, and then shoeless Joe Jackson as well. Let me throw that onto the pile as well. So this is very much a journey for him to kind of reconnect with... Uh, what he'd lost with his father, right? This this repairing of this relationship. And so he's seeing this vision. It's such a, most people go to therapy. Uh, this fool built a whole damn baseball field in his backyard. So pretty incredible stuff. There are two things that you just made me think of. Mm. The first is just W.P. Kinsella, who comes up with this concept. Yeah. This guy just has to build this bait. And Shoeless Joe Jackson and J.D. Salinger is going to be in it. And this whole thing, which we'll yeah. get into about Doc Graham. Like all of these that he somehow in his brain puts these things together and feels no need to explain it. And this and this is the other thing I was mm -hmm. thinking of is that this is in that realm of magical realism. It's And, and you mm -hmm. know, I'm a very logical person where I's like, I want to know the reasons that things are happening. And so I don't think I could ever write in the, in the area of magical realism. And yet some of my favorite mm -hmm. movies, whether it's Woody Allen or, you know, other, other stories actually really exist in the... Well, this is just what happens. My, I never yeah. think about whether or not this is all in his head. It's totally reasonable that you bring it oh. up, but I, it's never occurred yeah. to me because to me, it's like, this is all just, re you just have to accept that this is all <laughs> what it is, you know, even right. though it's completely bizarre, but I totally get what yeah. you're saying. Um, and later on, they're putting the kid to bed. And this is just, again, a classic directing thing is you could have them him and Annie just have this conversation in one long scene, but instead they keep changing the location, changing the actions, makes it more interesting for the actors. Mm -hmm. And she's saying, I thought my family was crazy. And he's talking about Shoeless Joe. And this is, you know, the person that was suspended as you, as you brought it off. And then it's later at night, he's mm. still talking about Shoeless Joe. Um, and then there's this moment that he says, you're supposed to be so graceful and agile. I actually to see him play again, to let him play. Right an old wrong. Wait, wait a minute, boss. And when he says to right an old wrong, she stops and goes, wait a minute. Are you actually talking about doing this? <laughs> One of the differences, by the way, with the book is that in the book, there's very little resistance. Annie just says, okay. And I think the key piece of drama in the movie, you have to have resistance. You have to have like, whoa, of whoa. Because yeah. this is a crazy thing to do. Yeah. And he says, I can't think of one good reason why I should. And, and then, and this relates to what he said at the beginning of the movie. I'm 36 years old. I have a wife, a child, and a mortgage, and I'm scared to death I'm turning into my father. I, I, it, it was funny watching this for me now, you know, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's like the, it's like, uh, you know, the, the cats in the cradle song. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a classic song to make all young men and, and old men and many <laughs> young men and young women and old women cry. You know, which is that? Uh, Frank uh, Chapin, Harry Chapin. Harry Chapin. Yeah, right. Cats in the Cradle. Yeah. yeah. And, and this movie is very much like that to me because, mm -hmm. of course, as you said before, I was Ray. And now I'm thinking about, oh, am I turning into my father? You know, because I'm right. 51. Yeah. And I got a, right. you know, an eight-year-old kid who's almost nine. And I'm working a lot. And I think about those things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, I think the movie plants all the dad stuff much better than the book. What's your father got to do with all of this? I never forgave him for getting old. By the time he was old as I am now, he was ancient. He must have had dreams. But he never did anything about him. For all I know, he may have even heard voices too, but he, 
Sure didn't listen to them. Man never did one spontaneous thing in all the years I knew him. Annie, I'm afraid of that happening to me. And something tells me that this may be my last chance to do something about it. Yeah. It's pretty powerful, this moment, uh, for me, because this is how we are sometimes uh, as children of these men, that we only see them from the prism of the experience we had with them in their later years of their lives. We didn't know them in their 20s or their teens. We didn't know the wild shenanigans they pulled or the dreams that they had. Rarely do you have those conversations with your father. Even that in Avengers Endgame, when Tony goes back in time to have that conversation mm. and randomly run into his dad, that is such a poignant elevator scene with them talking back and forth about it. He's hearing his dad talking about the birth of Tony himself uh, and the nerves and the fears he has and if he's going to be a good dad or not. All of that, that this is something Tony would have never known about and had never spoken to his father about if he hadn't gone back in time to have that conversation with him in the elevator. And it's the same thing here. Ray is Ray is in the prism of whatever he experienced with his father. But he clearly didn't have conversation because he left at 4 or 16 or whatever. He never had the conversation with his dad about his dad's dreams. And, you know, before my father passed, and I'll say this, my dad and I had those conversations. I wanted him to tell me everything about him being a teenager and a kid, what his dreams were, what he was trying to do, what he wanted to do. Because I, I think this movie influenced that in some strange way before he passed from cancer. I wanted to have these conversations with him. And it's something that my mom complains to me about playfully because she's like, he never told me any of this stuff. He never told me that. But it's like, if you make the effort, you might be able to crack that wall before they pass to have that conversation. And it's a great way to change your perspective and see this man who you only saw as your father as a multidimensional human being who did had his experiences, had his dreams. And I love that that's the journey that the, uh, Costner is going on. It isn't just everyone else's journey. It's his journey, not just to repair the relationship, but to understand his father for real from top to bottom. Fathers and sons, man. Yeah, man. Fathers and sons. Like... Cat Stevens said it best. <laughs> and and <laughs> I know I know that, hey, most of the movies were made by guys. And so and so naturally we're we're going to have lots of fathers and sons stories and obviously people yeah. can have relationships to their mom and all those things but man you oh, want sure. you want to make me cry fathers and sons fathers and sons yeah, you know uh, it, it just it just re- and I think part of it and maybe it's generational and maybe it'll change now but our dads didn't show a lot of emotion you know mm-hmm. That was always, and our and our dads probably worked real hard, you know. And you, yeah. I certainly saw a lot more of my mom than I saw my dad growing up. And the the Agreed. lack there and the lack of emotion there means there's always going to be a an empty space within that relationship. And empty spaces mm. is where ma- movies and stories work. You know, yeah. if we all had great relationships with our dad, which communicated <laughs> perfectly, well, this movie kinds of movie wouldn't make us cry. You know, it would be boring. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then I love the, the final moment. He kind of says, I want to build a field. And he asks her if you think I'm crazy. And she says, yes. But I also think if you really feel you should do this. then you should do it. It's a great wife. Agreed. There have been a couple of times in my life where I've I've built the baseball field. 
you know, where I did the thing that was, whether it was just quitting my job and doing Siren when I did that web series so long ago, or doing the assistance. The assistance definitely where I said, look, I've said I wanted to do this my whole life. And I remember going like, I think I was in my late 30s at the time. And I went, I'm getting older. If if I'm not going to do it now, I'm never going to do it. Yeah. And so I, you know, that was where that journey began. Yeah. And for for Ray, his journey begins on a on a tractor plowing under his cornfield with a whole bunch of neighbors looking at him going, what is he doing? Look, you can't have a sports <laughs> movie without a montage. And of here's course. your montage. So, well, yeah. What's so brilliant about this is what we're going to do is, again, good movies do multiple things at once. So, yes, we're going to show him cut down the cornfield. But we're also having him give a huge exposition dump with his daughter explaining to her all about Shoeless Joe Jackson. And added to that, we have the added tension of the the neighbors all looking at him like he's crazy. Mm -hmm. And that makes that exposition just go by beautifully. And it also harkens back to what he had said. His fathers, uh, they didn't have, you know, like anything else but baseball. He schooled me on baseball since I was a kid. Here he is after just saying, yeah. I'm afraid I'm turning into my father, schooling his daughter about baseball. But I, the way, I think the way he's doing it is a more affectionate way, a more uh, inclusive way. Uh, rather than telling her about it, he's talking to her about it. And I think that's the difference. But you see that he is doing the exact same things his father did, passing it on as baseball does, passed on from father to son, generation to generation. And they, we see that they they build the field, they build the stands. He puts up lights. I mean, this is a big, big <laughs> baseball diamond. By the way, in the book, I think it's only left field. They only build a left field. They don't build oh, a whole baseball diamond. Really? Yeah. And again, now we're on the field. Everything is built. Again, it is magic hour, and he is with Annie. Uh, they shot this over like a week because they had to keep starting oh, wow. and stopping. And. <laughs> And the last thing he tells about Shoeless Joe, and I think this story is so poignant. You know, my father said he saw him years later playing under a made-up name in some 10th-rate league in Carolina. Said he'd put on 50 pounds and the spring was gone from his step, but he could still hit. And I just that image of the old guy yeah. who just couldn't get away from the game is so profound to me. Still re- trying to recapture youth. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I like what Annie says here. This is the first time I've seen you smile when you talk about your dad. That's so important. It's funny, the, the, the Shoeless Joe story reminds me of Jack Johnson, the, the heavyweight champion, who, you know, stripped Great. of his title and had to, and, and all of the things that happened to him. And he, he was in his 60s yeah. and was still going around having fights. Yeah. And apparently, yeah. even though he was big and he was fat and he was out of shape, his jab was, and his defense was still, you know, young guys couldn't touch him. Do you think it's funny because I was been thinking about this movie because I was looking at James Earl Jones. Oh yeah. Do you think um, the Great White Hope is a movie we would ever do? I I literally had that thought as soon as you brought it up. I love that movie. That movie. I remember that was one of the biggest cries I ever had after watching a movie. Yeah. Uh, because it is one of the most greatest performances from James Earl Jones you'll ever see. Oh, amazing! And the story is so goddamn heartbreaking uh, and tragic. Um, and yeah, I would love to do it. Would love to do Great White Hope. It would be interesting to do. It would be very different for the cinephiles. Is to, but since we did the Civil War, is we could almost mm. do the Great White Hope in uh, tandem with the documentary about Jack Johnson, who Great White Hope is about. Um, yep. Anyway, something to think about. I have just created something totally illogical. <laughs> By great. the way, this shot of Costner, Steve, it occurred to me as I was watching it this time. 
He's a Greek god. Oh, like, yeah. In this moment, it is, as you said, Pete Costner, he is the all-American boy. He, is, he has that smile. He's a man. He just has this vibe. You could tell ladies probably fell all over themselves from Kevin Costner. And me as a man watching this, and I was like, man, I wish once in my life I looked that good. And it's just like incredible how uh, attractive he is in that moment and how a bunch of a movie star. That's such a movie star shot, the way it's framed, the way this hair kind of comes oh, yeah. a little bit, the, the half smile on his face. All of it, you're just like, oh, you lucky SOB. You lucky SOB. <laughs> it's so funny thinking about it because I think Dances with Wolves is the next year. And, yes. And yes. Waterworld is only like three or four years later. Yeah. Maybe less. Yeah, maybe less. It's fast for, to go from yeah. Pete Costner to, you know, through Dances with Wolves with full Pete Costner. And then, nope. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank yeah. you for your service, sir. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't it fun it was yeah. fun wasn't it and it's not that he hasn't done some good things since then he's done a, he's done a few no, good true. things but yeah there was yeah. no longer Pete Costner what happens in the book at this point is that Shoeless Joe shows up but that's not what happens in the movie and in the movie it's like a whole year goes by we see winter oh, wow. and Christmas yeah because we see wow. the snow you know so there's right. a whole year that he's and nothing is happening I mean the level of crazy because that he's got to feel that he's crazy. His wife's got to feel yeah. that he's crazy. Just having this baseball diamond for no reason for like a year. And paying the power on it and the maintenance on it. Ooh, yeah. yeah. And that's where we get to is that uh, it's, it's, it's time later and they're sitting down and doing the books. We used up all our savings on that field, Ray. So what are you saying? We can't keep the field? Makes it real hard to keep the farm. And it's such a classic, like, they're going to foreclose on our farm story. Um, but that's what's going on. And at this moment, the daughter starts saying, Daddy, and they're getting upset. It's like, quiet down, quiet down. Grown-ups have to talk. And finally, there's a man up there in the lawn. <laughs> and they go out and look, and standing in the middle of the baseball field is a man in a baseball uniform. And we hear the mystical sounds, and Annie says, I'll put some put coffee. Put up some coffee. Why don't you go on outside? It's amazing to me that she doesn't go. Yeah, well, it's his journey. That's what's so great to me is that she knows it's his journey. I mean, like, yep. If, yep. If, if you and Lindley were, if she had predicted some magical thing was going to happen in your courtyard and you waited a year for it to happen and then it happened, it would be very hard to not go, okay, you go ahead outside without me. <laughs> Just stay, this is Steve. your journey. You know? Steve, my YouTube, my YouTube channel is my baseball field. So she <laughs> is going to be dealing with it for a year as I try to make something happen from that thing. So It, it is your baseball field. You're right. Yeah. It yeah. totally is. Yeah. It's um, crazy. I don't know if it's going to work. It's totally illogical, but I'm trying my damnedest to make the Outlaw Nation thing something that I can actually make a living doing with that channel. So yeah, she is very kind to be Annie. But what's great about Annie too here going and put the coffee on is also that Annie understands she's in this thing with him and she knows, okay, she sees it, get coffee on. There's nothing phases her throughout this whole thing. And I think that's just a brilliant thing that gets overlooked when people talk about this film or analyze this film. She is the rock from which she can totally. do all this stuff from. Yeah. I think Amy Madigan, such good casting mm. and her performance is so great. And it's like, yeah. he says he hears voices. She doesn't react like you think she would. Right. He says, I want to build the field. And although she resists it, when she sees that he really believes in it, she's like, this is what you have to do. And then she lets right. the field be there for a year. 
while they're losing money mm-hmm. and potentially losing the farm. And then when a magical, mystical shoeless Joe Jackson appears on the field, <laughs> she just says, I'll get some coffee. I think, you know what? I think she did do some acid in the 60s and she realized oh, go. that you got to roll with the trip. You can't fight the trip. <laughs> like, oh, this is what's happening now. <laughs> this mystical guy just, on my field. <laughs> you just hope it's a good one. You just hope it's a good one. Um, Ray Liotta. Yeah. I love his performance in this film. He's so young and people forget he had a career before Goodfellas. Yeah. He did a he did a really sweet film with Thomas Holt called Dominic and Eugene where he played oh, Thomas yeah. Holt's brother. Yeah, and Thomas Holt is this like uh, he's I think he's uh, mentally handicapped and he has to take care of him. And so there was this this uh, Ray Liotta built it up. Oh, he also was this the crazy villain in Something Wild yeah, uh, yeah. with Melanie Griffith. So he'd been slowly building his kind of reputation through the 80s, but here it's such an unusual choice because your idea of Shoeless Joe is a hapless guy who had this thing thrust upon him and Leota just conveys this steel in his eyes, this energy in his eyes, but to see him play a wide-eyed Shoeless Joe Jackson who's like surprised at what he's experiencing, right? His spirit has been drawn down into this place and he's not sure what this is you know this film doesn't care that much about that being realistic and one of the things shoes joe i think he's from like south carolina or something you know Mm -hmm. and ray liotta is so new york he is new york and this moment that he comes out it's handled with such reverence it's almost religious Mm -hmm. in nature the way this is done and that what they did was the the dp just lit an area of the field and he said they said to to ray this is like walking into church for you. Everything has meaning. And they said, this is the area you can walk in, do whatever you would do. And him touching the grass and looking around and feeling the space. It's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, and Ray turns on the big lights and they nod at each other. And he kind of does that fist in the glove and he gets in his stance and that communicates. I want you to hit some balls to me. <laughs> this moment just works so <laughs> great. He goes, he goes out grabs the bat and ball he's nervous goes to hit the ball and <laughs> fouls it <laughs> sorry I, I get some out there he hits fly balls to him which joe catches so here's the thing you hear in almost every film that involves sports kevin was a great athlete mm-hmm. you hear it so often that it's one of those things where i go okay come on they can't not every actor can be a natural right. athlete um, in this case, I think it's probably true. I think he probably was yeah. a pretty good ball player. Um, and what uh, the director said is that he, he, when he was hitting these fly balls, he'd ask exactly where do you want it? Oh, I want him five feet to raise left. And that's where he'd hit it. That's what, that's what he mm-hmm. says. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and Joe comes in. They introduce themselves. This speech that Joe Jack's Shoeless Joe does when he goes and handles the bats and the balls is just so beautiful. Getting thrown out of baseball. It was like having part of me amputated. I've heard that old men wake up and scratch itchy legs that have been dust for over 50 years. That was me. I'd wake up at night with the smell of the ballpark in my nose, the cool of the grass on my feet, the thrill of the grass. I love that line, the thrill of the grass. I've I've never... How can I say this? I've never felt that way about baseball and I played baseball for three years growing up but I never felt that way about baseball but I understand this like when you hear people talk about 
the way baseball gets in their blood, in their veins. It's the one sport. I believe it's the one sport that when people talk about it with such reverence, it is religious. More than sport, more than football, more than soccer or football, whatever you American football, whatever you want to say, more than hockey. There's something religious about baseball. And the way he's speaking about it here in this speech, I think really conveys that. You know, the smell in the nose, the feeling of the grass under your feet. Like it's, it's almost hippie-like coming back to the land. Do you know what I'm saying? Baseball sure. brings you back to the land. And so the way he speaks about it is is really powerful. And I have always been amazed at people who have that feeling about baseball, you know. Couple things. First of all, you know, mm. baseball is a pastoral game as opposed to, mm. you know, football, which is an urban game. You know, it's it's football, you know, it's the you go right back to the George Carlin baseball football thing of, you know, baseball is pastoral, 19th century. Football is technological, 20th century. Baseball is played on a diamond in a park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium. War Memorial Stadium. (laughs) In baseball, you wear a cap. In football, you wear a helmet. Baseball has a seventh inning stretch. Football has a two minute warning. Baseball has no time limit. We don't know how long it's going to last. We might have extra innings. Football is rigidly timed, and it will end even if we have to go to sudden death. It's one of my favorite <laughs> sketches. Um, maybe we'll put a, a link to it. Uh, so that's, that's the first thing. I'll tell you the place that I've felt this. It's not baseball. Where I felt what Shoeless mm-hmm. Joe is talking about is walking into a theater, stepping on stage. Mm-hmm. like the th- Oh, yeah. The theater, not not a movie theater, where a play happens, for whatever reason, that's like a sacred space to me. Mm-hmm. And going in, like when there's no play and you're on the stage and there's the the ghost light is on there mm-hmm. and you're just looking out of the house or in walking through the wings and there's just this reverence. I it's the same thing. Yeah. Like I want to talk in whispers and and sort of reach out and touch the space. It's like it's a magical space to me and always was growing up, which maybe is part of like. I bet my dad would have been much happier if I felt that way about baseball because <laughs> then we would have had something we could relate to more, you know, but no, I right. felt that way about theater, which is something it's not that he would go to the theater, but he'd, he didn't have those feelings. Right. One more thing about this scene is the Phil Alden Robinson, the director decided to shoot this in one shot. He did no coverage. So he didn't do close-ups. He didn't do over the shoulders. Wow. And his reason was he was terrified that the editors or the studio would want to cut up this scene cut up the speech. Mm. And so he shot it in one shot. So there was, it was take it or leave it. There was no way to cut out this speech because he loved it so much. And it ends with Shoeless Joe saying, can you pitch? Kevin Costner plays this great. Yeah, not bad. His nervousness, yeah. his excitement, the, the strangeness of the moment. Don't we need a catcher? Not if you get it near the plate, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. The swagger of a ball player. And even, even Ray talking to himself going, I am pitching to Shoeless Joe Jackson. So right. great. Um, so they had a, a baseball coach, as you'd imagine, for all of this stuff. And it was Rod Dado, who was the USC baseball coach, one of the most the winningest coaches in college baseball wow. history. One of the most. Uh, hugely successful. And their other uh, coach is Don Buford. Mm. One thing about this is that 
Shoeless Joe, I think he hit right and and threw left, threw lefty. Mm-hmm. And Ray Liotta was the opposite. I don't remember which one it was, is that Ray Liotta <laughs> hit left and threw righty, which is unusual to begin yeah. with. And so for the first bunch of training, he kept trying to reverse it and hit like Shoeless Joe, and he just couldn't do it. And so he hits right righty in this scene. Um and because the coaches finally said, just do what you're comfortable with. Yeah. And there are, of course, the sticklers for history that criticize the film for this, um, which I think is silly. And there's the moment yeah. where uh, Kevin says, let's see if you can hit my curve. <laughs> and he throws the ball. And Ray Liotta, and this is totally real and totally an accident, not planned at all. Hits the ball right back at him, knocks, hits the bag of balls. <laughs> Kevin goes down and gets up and says, yeah, yeah, you can hit the curveball. Which was improvised. <laughs> but this is where you see the skill of Kevin Costner. Yeah. The way he pitches, this is one one take yeah. where he pitches that ball all the way across the plate and Leota, whoever's standing in for Leota, absolutely cranks it into the um, field. They don't cut away from Costner's pitch at all. His form and everything is right there over the plate. It's a oh, perfect yeah. pitch. Um, and what it is, is it is Reliota hitting that ball. Wow. But then to, the shot to go it into the corn is a ball cannon. <laughs> because they needed the accuracy to know exactly where the ball was going to go. But it is Ray, that's Reliota's swing. Man, I did love this game. I don't play for food money. It was a game. I love the way he yeah. says it was a game. There's, I don't know. There's something about that word, not a sport and certainly not a business. It was a game mm-hmm. that you play. Um, and yeah. the reverence talking about the trains and the hotels and the crowds and... Shoot. I'd have played for nothing. Ray Liotta does a beautiful job with that speech. Yeah, he does. And Annie and Karen come out and they introduce them. He asks, by the way, about the lights. All the stadiums have them now. Even Wrigley Field. Makes it harder to see the ball. Yeah, well, the owners found that more people could attend night games. And Shoeless Joe's reaction to the word owners yeah. is perfect. Owners. Yeah, because that uh, that's what stems from the Chicago White Sox, because Wrigley was their owner at the time. Wrigley was the one who was paying them up almost nothing to play the game, and there weren't any bonuses, or there weren't that many, or the bonuses weren't that high, which is why they took the money from Ace Rothstein and those gamblers uh, to kind of like take care of their families. They thought this could be a situation, they get away with it, whatever, and it's because Wrigley was such a cheapskate owner, and a lot of the owners back then were cheapskates. Look, they're still cheapskates now. If they had their, if they had their own ability to do it, they would. Uh, so there's no difference. So to hear him speak about the owner in that way is, is just perfect little nod to people who know the history of that situation. Well, and it's perfect contrast to the it was a game. Yeah, right, exactly. Not you know because for the owners it was a business a factory. So how do we make money off of this thing? Yep. As opposed yep. to it was a game. One more thing, by the way, about shooting this. So you know what happens when you put giant lights up in the middle of the night in the middle of cornfields in Iowa? Bugs. Thousands, millions of bugs swarming so loud that they had to ADR all this music. They had to loop it. The audio wasn't bad because the bug sound was so loud. And they had dudes on the towers up with these lights because they had to adjust lights for the cinematography. And those dudes are swarmed with bugs. Just like in the end, they were wearing like just like wearing like beekeeper outfits because bugs are just landing on them and everything. It just sounds really awful. Yep. And as they're introducing uh, uh, Shoeless Joe to uh, Annie and Karen, suddenly a fog comes in. 
And people see the movie go, oh, it's so beautiful as it gets so foggy. And they went, and what happened was they went, oh, no. And they jumped way ahead in their shooting schedule to get that close-up of Ray Liotta that's so beautiful before the fog came mm. in and obscured all the lights and wiped out the scene. Oh, wow. Would you like to come inside? And he looks down mm. and we see a very clear border between the field and not the field. Yeah. And he cannot cross it. Nope. Um, this is a key piece of information and he jogs away and just as he's almost gone he asks hey is this heaven and Kevin says no it's Iowa I don't I don't even know why that moves me so much but it's it's just beautiful well if I could venture a guess Steve I mean you're an atheist so to you there is no heaven Right sure. or the concept of heaven can be here on Earth. The and we see that later when mm. Costner looks at his wife and his child and yeah. he's answering his father. And heaven is Earth. Earth can be heaven. You can have your heaven on Earth. Um, and so the fact that he's saying that to him and he says, "No, it's Iowa," but it feels like heaven. Yeah, you know, like you just said, the game, being there on the field, the smell, my feet in the grass, all of it. This is heaven. You know. And Shoeless Joe Jackson walks into the corn and disappears. And disappears. <laughs> it's such a simple special effect. Yeah. yeah. Uh, th- this And this is ILM, by the way. I mean, all it is is a lockdown camera shot and a dissolve between two shots. And then ILM added some fireflies and a little bit of dust and stuff. But th- one of the things that's so smart about this film is they understood that they it needed to be simple. Yes. We're keeping this field. You bet your ass we are. <laughs> <laughs> Cut to Timothy Busfield, and you're going oh. to lose the farm. <laughs> oh, you jerk off. You Busfield, you jerk off. <laughs> so I love Timothy Busfield so much. Oh, yeah. I think he is such a good actor, and <laughs> who we first saw in Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yes. The violinist. He And if you watch The West Wing, his character in The West Wing, it's one of the great supporting actor performances. Oh, yeah in history. And what he does here is so yeah. great because he's the villain. There's no question he's the villain. Mm-hmm. And yet I think his villainy comes directly out of a sense of care for his sister. Yeah, absolutely. Like, he genuinely cares and does not understand why this guy is doing this stupid stuff, which is they don't have enough money. They can't pay the mortgage. You, you plowed under your crop to build a cornfield. Like, you know, you came out of you didn't like farming. You don't know anything about farming. And Kevin says, I know a lot about farming. Oh, you do? Yeah, oh, I know yeah. a lot more than you think I know. Well, then how could you plow under your major crop? What's a crop? <laughs> <laughs> and then and then the the daughter says, time for the game to start. And he goes, okay, we've got to go. And, and, and I get it. Like, Mark, the Tim Buffsfield character, is like, What's wrong with this guy? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's obviously insane. He's going to watch a t- some game on TV when he's going to lose the farm. And you can imagine, Steve, if you're looking at it, you can read into this situation, right? What, what did Coster say at the beginning with his exposition, a voiceover rather, and he said, you know, we moved in with Annie's p- family and it lasted the better part of an afternoon. These, they probably thought she went off to California, hooked up with this hippie dude, and now he's, she's brought him here. They probably never liked him. They don't yeah. like California. They don't like hippies. They're salt of the earth people. We're real Americans. That kind of shit. And so here comes, 
Here, they knew this was coming. He was going to do something insane or stupid because he's a hippie and it was bound to happen. Now it's shown itself. And now Mark is full on into that kind of like, you got to get out of this situation, maybe divorce this guy or get him to see the logic, blah, 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 because he's being totally crazy and he's trying to appeal to that. But Annie is legitimately who she is, her own person, and she's going to walk her own path no matter what Mark says. But it, I mean, it just makes so much sense. Well, and again, to be perfectly clear from their perspective, this is crazy. I mean, absolutely. This is nuts. Um, yes. And we, we go out and we see all the guys appear to uh, to play baseball. None of this was scripted. They Phil just saw them coming out of the cornfield. It's like, oh, that's great. Let's shoot that. Um, and we see them. You know, we get a, you know our baseball montage to play a little pickle. We're pitching. Mm-hmm. We're catching some batting practice. Um, some of the guys are still arguing. There's a lot of, you know, giving each other some flack about stuff. Hell yeah. And now up shows Mark. Uh, Tim Busfield, and who, who's also, by the way, with a woman who I'm assuming is his wife, and another older woman who is clearly Annie's mom. Yep. And she is the, she is the really harsh one. There is <laughs> there's no warmth about her at all. Nope. And they don't see the game. They don't see it at all. And what? And this is again, this is a directorial choice because the way that normally you do this thing. When some people see a thing and some people don't, is that you see the person seeing the thing, and then mm-hmm. you cut to the person who can't see the thing, and then you cut to their point of view, and there's nothing there. Yeah, that's the that's the classic way to do it. And I think the choice mm-hmm. to have them there the whole time, and we never see Tim Busfield or the other people's perspective, yeah. is really really brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And their reaction to the yeah. fact that they can't see the game is great. You, you really don't see him. I don't think it's very polite to try to make other people feel stupid. Mm. Steve. Yes. Do we have to? I mean, I feel like we have to talk about it and we'll probably get in trouble for it. But we got to talk about it. What do we got to talk about? If this film comes out in 2019, 2020, Fox News is having a field day with this film (laughs) and saying, oh, they're making fun of us in the Midwest. They're making fun of real Americans, blah, blah, blah. All it's but what it's actually saying is that it's a dangerous thing to lose the inner child inside of you, the joy of life, to discover the joy of life, to lose what you can, the childlike innocence you have to have sometimes with life or the childlike joy of life. If you lose that, you become this hardened, bitter, uh, analytical thing. And I think you can lose the joy. And I think that's the fact that those three people who are so adamant and don't see the baseball field, of course they don't see the baseball field. But little Karen can. Why? Because she's a child and she has the childlike innocence of it. And to believe in these things, uh, uh, we lose that as we get older, the belief of the fantastical. And that's what movies do so well. They remind us. They bring us back to that believing of the fantastical, enjoying of the uh, enjoying stuff that's, that's uh, you know, crazy and out there and wild. It reminds us, uh, you know, the, the, what we used to feel like when we were kids. One of my favorite pictures or memes that I ever saw or cartoons was uh, a picture of a guy in his 40s walking into Star Wars The Force Awakens and the next panel is him walking out and he's a 10 year old kid <laughs> and that's what movies do they bring you back to that time and this situation with the people playing baseball is bringing uh, Ray and Annie back to that because they're more conducive to remember how po- important it is to, to have that to never lose that childlike joy about life and those three don't there's, there's so much in what you're saying, and I'm just thinking about, it's sort of putting something in perspective to me that I haven't seen before, 
which is there's so many threads that are in this film that are unified by what you just said. So one of them mm. is that Shoeless Joe says it was a game. Well, who plays games? Right. Kids. Yep. And in fact, that word play, what is play? Well, play is also we put on a play. It's we imagine yeah. things. And there's a moment we'll talk about it. So at the very end of the film where the daughter, the little girl says people will come and they'll go back to when they were kids. Yeah. There's this thing about play and imagination. And it's funny, like I think about again, I think about the 60s and I think about what when I've been to Burning Man and what is that there are so many ridiculously silly things <laughs> that people put all this work into, like building a baseball diamond in the middle of a cornfield that make no sense <laughs> because they think it would be fun to do that thing. And so they'll build yeah. a giant dragon out of a city bus and drive it around the desert and it costs tons of hours and a lot of money to do something absolutely ridiculous right which is exactly what ray is doing in this film i just did something completely illogical yeah and so there is a connection between it was a game and the game we played as a kid and being childlike and having an imagination mm -hmm. and the ability to see this game yeah yeah right. there's a there's a there's a lot here and then I love there's a little gag after after the family leaves and he's talking to this older baseball player who fits into his old uniform and he says, oh, you must be in good shape. He's like, well, well let's see, I died in 70. That means I haven't had a cigarette in what, 18 years. You don't smoke, do you? No. <laughs> <laughs> and then they go off and disappear into the corn. Bunch of great character actors, yep. by the way, as these baseball players. Bunch of great character actors. And the next scene we have, we hear the voice again. And the voice says, ease his pain. I'm sorry, what? I, I didn't understand. What? Ease his pain. Ease his pain? What? What the, hell, what the hell does that mean, ease his pain? What pain? All right? Whose pain? I built the field. <laughs> I did it. And we go into the kitchen. And this, again, this is all in one shot. And, uh, yeah. and and by the way, if you watch, uh, here's a totally small acting thing I'm sure you're familiar with, is that when you're acting in a scene and you have some business, like putting down something heavy on a wood table, you don't want to put that thing mm -hmm. down right in the middle of your line because that sound will cut off the sound of your line. Watch how Amy yep. Madigan does all her business in the scene. She moves things exactly between lines. So it does. That's just good technical film acting. And she's going, yep. what is this easiest pain? You got to build a football field. And, 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 and like, well, who's paying? Shoeless Joe's? And he goes, I don't know. And she says, Ray, this is a very nonspecific voice you have out there. And he's starting to piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> She's so great, man. It's so great. Well, and now we're going to see her, her at her peak because we're going to head off to the PTA meeting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By the way, this is, this is Amy Madigan's first day of shooting. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Which she was not happy about. She's like, can't you let me warm up a little bit, play some other scenes? I don't want to have to jump right into the scene, but this is what they had to do. And and one of the purposes of this scene is that in the book, when the character is J.D. Salinger, we don't have to do a lot to introduce him. Right. Because he's a famous character. Yeah. But in the movie, where we're inventing a character, we have to tell who this guy is. And so what's happening at this PTA yeah. meeting is they want to ban the book of this author, Terrence Mann. And I, I say, say smut, smut 
and filth like this has no place in our schools. And there's this guy who's like on the school board or something. He's like, no, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist. It's a, mm-hmm. you know, the Supreme Court says it's not pornography. And while this is happening, Ray is looking at his thinking through Ease's pain. What does Ease's pain mean? Yeah. And Annie is just like jumping out of her skin and how she can't believe that they're actually talking about banning books. And finally, she just can't handle it anymore. And she stands up. Terrence Mann was a warm and gentle voice of reason during a time of great madness. She says that he invented the phrase, make love, not war, which, of course, he didn't. I don't know who invented that phrase. (laughs) And I think if you had experienced even a little bit of the 60s, you might feel the same way, too. I experienced the 60s. No, I think you had two 50s and moved right on into the 70s. <laughs> and at this point, this woman comes at her and says, well, at least I'm not married to someone who plowed under their main crop. Went to the personal place. Yeah. You, you don't have to go to the personal place. <laughs> and we have this big crowd of people, which are all just local Iowan people. This was uh, shot in Dubuque and in Dyersville in Iowa. Okay. And all these local people are doing sort of the tennis shot, which is they look from one person to the other. <laughs> and Annie comes back. At least... He is not a book burner, you Nazi cow. (laughs) Uh, You always got a default to the Nazis. Always default to the Nazis. What's really funny is that the woman, the other actress who who, who played sort of the horrible Iowa uh, book burner. Yeah, Beulah. Tells Amy, yeah, Beulah tells Amy Madigan, listen, when you do your off camera line, can you say something really horrible to me? Like not Nazi cow, (laughs) like worse, so that I have something to react to. And Amy Madigan says, sure. And apparently (laughs) she said really horrible stuff and yes, got a good reaction, but completely shocked the 200 Iowan extras who were in the room just like, oh my God. (laughs) Um, And then what happens is that Annie just goes to the crowd. Who's for Eva Braun here? Who wants to burn books? Who wants to spit on the Constitution of the United States of America? Anybody? And this is just a classic, you know, how long has it been since you beat your wife question is that how can anyone (laughs) say no to this? Now, who's for the Bill of Rights? Who thinks freedom is a pretty darn good thing? Come on, come on, let's see those hands. And reluctantly, they all start to put their hands up. (laughs) Um... And she wins, and just as she's winning this argument in front of this huge Iowa community to save a book from being banned is the moment that uh, Ray figures out that Ease's pain is about Terrence Mann. All right, there you go, America. I love you. I'm proud of you. I mean it. We gotta go. We gotta go. (laughs) This is great. And they go out in the hallway, and I love that Amy Madigan slides in to the space. So it's, it's great. I figured it out. God, it was just like the 60s again. I, I just figured it out. Step outside, you Nazi cat. I know, I know, I know whose pain I'm supposed to eat. What? I know whose pain it is I'm supposed to eat. Ray, I just halted the spread of neo-fascism in America. You're talking... Terrence Mann. Her, her little fist punches and yeah. her fist punches and dancing off her feet. Like, she's so excited because she probably hasn't had the chance to have these kinds of battles in Iowa for quite some time. And so the fact that she's getting to, like, bring out her... Uh, inner warrior there in a little bit totally. is a lot of fun for her you know and yeah. <laughs> and of course her husband doesn't have any time for her triumph because he's figured out no. what ease's pain is 
And now he's right, got to right. convince her. She's Because now she's, again, the resistance is turning up. She wasn't very resistant on the field. And then the guy showed up. But now it's like, you want to go to Terrence Mann? What does he have to do with ba- about baseball? And we go into another montage uh, where we see young shots of James Old Jones as Terrence Mann and describe that he was part of this huge um, movement, the movement of the 60s. And he was this really important figure and that he was this big writer. And then he went off the grid and now he writes poetry or something and, and writes computer programs for educational videos or something like that. Right, right. And again, we're still going, what has this got to do with baseball? Okay. The last interview he ever gave was in 1973. Guess what it's about? Some kind of team sport. Annie, the guy was a baseball fanatic. Listen to this. As a child, my earliest recurring dream was to play at Ebbets Field with Jackie Robinson and the Brooklyn Dodgers. Of course, it never happened, and the Dodgers left Brooklyn, and they tore down Ebbets Field. But even now, I still dream that dream. And they head into the house, and this is where she is pushing back hard. She says, this is nuttier than building the field. And he says, no, it's not. The field was weirder. It's maybe 10% weirder. (laughs) And she basically says, no, we are going to lose the farm. Yeah. This is too much. Now, look, I understand your need to prove to yourself and to the world you are not turning into your father, but you've done it. Look, you believed in the magic. It happened. Isn't that enough? Mm. That's that's a pretty strong argument, particularly yep. the I know yep. you need had the need to prove that you're not your father. It's the shot. Yeah. yeah. I think something's going to happen to the game. I don't know what, but there's something at Fenway Park, and I got to be there with Terrence Mann to find it out. And she stops and says, Is Fenway the one with the big green wall in left field? Yeah. I dreamt last night you were at Fenway with Terrence Mann. (laughs) Was I sitting on the first base side? Yes. About halfway up on the aisle? Yeah, you were keeping score. I was eating a hot hot dog. dog. I had the same dream. (sighs) I'll help you pack. <laughs> because if you create the resistance, you got to overcome the resistance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. None of this is in the book. All this is just stuff that was in the movie. We're off driving, and of course, he has a VW bus. We're listening to some Almond Brothers, and he is rehearsing his speech. Hi, I'm Ray Kinsella. Hi. Hi, I'm Ray Kinsella. It's a great pleasure to finally get to. Hi. <laughs> Um, and the way they did this was they just said, improvise what you think you would say to him. And they shot the same shot over and over again. They just drove back and forth on the same piece of road as Kevin improvised a different way to do it. And another way to do it. And they just cut it all together with jump cuts. And it's so great because you could see the building frustration and the fact that he's going a little stir crazy in this car <laughs> and all of it just by the improvisation on this speech. It's great. Yeah, totally. We go into the Jewish neighborhood in Boston um, which is shot in Dubuque, Iowa. They did shoot stuff in Boston, by the way, and part of the reason they had they scheduled to go to Boston when they scheduled it was to give the corn time to grow. Ah. So they, they shot in Iowa when the corn was lower, then went to shoot in Boston, and so when they came back, the corn was at the height they needed it to be. So this is in Dubuque now with this Jewish neighborhood, and there's some local guy walking down the street while they're <laughs> shooting going, I didn't know there were so many Jews in Dubuque. Um, and he's he's doing a terrible job asking where to find terrence Mann. you know like oh he's my friend he just didn't give me the address well if he was your friend he probably would have given you the address finally gets the directions of 
uh, just go to the door that doesn't have a chicken on it, and he finds it. He goes into the place, and he goes up to some big door, and he rings the bell, and <laughs> James Old Jones opens the door and says, Who the hell are you? He goes, Sir, my name's, and he slams the door in his face. Great, yep. great character introduction. Here's how he got cast. So Phil Alden Robinson wrote the part for him. Wow. This was his whole intention from the beginning. This is the person he wanted. And the reason he chose him was he said, I want to find someone that is really scary for Kevin Costner to have to stand up against. That we want to cast someone super powerful. And what's so weird about this, so this movie's made in 1989. We just did Hunt for October, which is 1990, which also has James Earl Jones. Mm -hmm. And the reason it has James Earl Jones is that John McTiernan saw James Earl Jones and Courtney B. Vance, who's in Hunt for October, in Fences. Oh. Phil Alden Robinson saw Fences too. And that is why he decided to write this part for James Earl Jones. The same performance, and it's the same play when I saw James Earl Jones in Fences, one of the great theater experiences mm. of all time. They send the script. Yeah. James Earl Jones doesn't read it. His wife reads it and says, you got to do this movie. And he goes, why? And he said, well, it's got a speech in it that you want to do. And unfortunately, the speech will probably get cut out of the movie because no one leaves speeches that long in films. But just on the chance that you can do this speech, you got to do the film. And that is why he he agreed to do it. Thank God he did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's so great in this movie. This might be one of my all-time favorite performances of his. Because it's so uh, deft and fun and complicated and powerful. Yeah. We got a learning disability here. Mr. Man, if I could just have one minute, please. Look. I can't tell you the secret of life, and I don't have any answers for you. I don't give interviews, and I'm no longer a public figure. I just want to be left alone. So piss off. James Earl Jones is really scary when he wants to be. Oh, my God. The voice is scary enough. Yeah. But once the movement combines with the voice, yeah, you can be quite intimidated by this man. Remember, this man is, what, seven years removed from Conan. So right. he's still a very scary dude. And, and by the way, the direction of this was that Phil told him was like, this isn't the first time. This has happened over and over again. And you know how to get rid of these people. Oh, I'm sure. But he still opens the door, which I find to be, maybe that's an 80s thing. Yep. But he still opens the door when people knock. But that knock of his is that weird kind of, I don't know what you're like a wind chime that you yank yeah. on, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just an interesting thing he's choosing uh, to use as a knocking device on his door. Here's the thought that I had. Okay. Because there's another moment too, because he, he lets him in a little bit and then he kicks him out. And then when he kicks him out the second time, he doesn't close the door all the way, which we're going to get to in a sec. Right. Right. What I'm wondering is, did he have the dream about Fenway Park? Maybe. You know what I mean? It's a good question. Because yeah, it's a good he, question. He does put up resistance, but it's not that much right. resistance. Well, and then later he he lies to Costner mm-hmm. at the ballpark when he says, "See what?" And even he doesn't know what it is because right. he is being brought pushed along by this vision. So maybe he did have that dream and whatever and and how it all came about and why wouldn't you resist it? I mean, Annie has resisted in her own right. way. So Terrence Mann would super resist this situation because as people know about the J.D. Salinger stuff, which by the way is a, is kind of like what uh, Sean Connery is playing in Finding Forrester, right. the kind of the self-isolated writer who does not want who cannot handle the attention of what the book has done yeah. and to be forced to go out into the public again, uh, not by your own free will, 
uh, is what he confronts in this situation. Oh, one other thing about this. This is shot on a, mm. a stage in, a, in Dubuque. We're in Iowa. It was super mm. hot all summer. And it is. And the thing about stages is you can't blast air conditioning in a movie set because of the noise. So yeah. you're under a bunch of hot lights in like a warehouse or something with no air conditioning on a 110 degree day. It's really hot. Yeah. Kevin had a flu, had the flu when they were shooting this. Oh. So he had a 102 degree fever. And they made the wardrobe choice to stick him in a leather jacket. So he's wearing a leather jacket with 102 degree fever in a really, really hot room having to act. You know, that's, <laughs> that's not easy. But he comes back in and then he even quotes this uh, one of obviously Terrence Mann's, you know, lines. And I love James yeah. L. Jones turns around with this big smile on his face and says, oh, my God. You're from the 60s. <laughs> he, and then he grabs the insect repellent thing and goes back. Back to the 60s. Wait back. a second. There's no place for you here just... in the future. Get back while you still can. It's <laughs> <laughs> genius. So, so damn genius. funny. You've changed. Yes, I suppose I have. How about this? Peace, love, dope. Now get the hell out of here. But this is where the door's still open. Yeah, a little jar. Um, and now he comes back in with his hand in his jacket pocket, faking the gun. It's the worst gun fake ever. What the hell is that? It's a gun. What do you think it is? It's your finger. No, it's not. It's a gun. Yeah, let me see it. Get out of here. I'm not going to show you my gun. <laughs> and James Earl Jones grabs a crowbar. And it's, yeah. And it's really scary. Until Ray says, you're a pacifist. He goes, ah, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then he explains, look, I just got to take you to this baseball game. You what? Tonight's game. Red Sox A's. You're seeing a whole team of psychiatrists, aren't you? <laughs> and finally, he yeah. the way he gets him is he says, look. It's a long story. But it's a really good story. And I'll tell you on the way. I'm not going to get rid of you, am I? No. If you just come to this game with me, I swear to God, I will never bother you again. Not even, not even a Christmas card. And then we cut to the baseball stadium. Yeah. Which is really crazy that he would actually go with him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And much of this was shot at Fenway Park. They said that at batting practice, they let uh, Kevin Costner take batting practice. Oh, wow. And that he hit the green wall, <laughs> which Damn. is pretty cool. Don't you miss being involved? I was the East Coast distributor of involved. Then they killed Martin, they killed Bobby. They elected Tricky Dick twice. Now people like you think I'm, I must be miserable because I'm not involved anymore. But I got news for you. I spent all my misery years ago. Great speech. Yeah. And then Kevin asks him, what do you want? And again, with that super James Earl Jones intensity, he says, I want them to stop looking to me for answers, begging me to speak again, write again, be a leader. I want them to start thinking for themselves and want my privacy. No, I meant, what do you want? And we cut, and we see they're standing in front of a concession stand. Three dudes with their arms folded. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the concession stand is in Iowa. Oh. So we were in Fenway, and now we're in Iowa. Um, and, and I love the way James Earl Jones takes this moment in and then just says, Oh. Dog in a beer. <laughs> Which is great. Then we're out watching the game. And by the way, some of this was shot at Fenway. 
with James Earl Jones and Kevin, and one or two of the shots of Kevin were shot in Iowa because they just kept running out of time. Go the distance. Up on the scoreboard comes a thing about Archie Moonlight Graham and his record at one game, and we hear the mystical music. What's the matter? You didn't see that? See what? And there's a reaction and a pause, and then Ray says, I'm sorry, I guess you didn't have to be here. What? Whenever you want to go, we can go. Fine, let's go. And they get in the car, and they're driving home, and James Earl Jones gets out, leans into the car window. You got another message, didn't you? You think I'm crazy? I already think you're crazy. What did it say? Said the man's done enough. And I love the way James Earl Jones says goodbye, because he does the the dealer gesture at the at Blackjack, yeah. where the dealer goes... Yeah. Like that, claps yeah. and shows his hands. He also holds his hand a little bit longer on the handshake. Yes, he does. And then does it. Because he doesn't, He it's that moment. And in my mind, I read it now as, do should I say anything? I, no, I'm out, I'm out. Yeah. And then, you know, Costner, what happens, happens. Yeah. The, the, the way the shot works is so great because we're in the sort of POV of the car that's turning around and... James Earl mm-hmm. Jones has walked away and then the car turns around and as the headlights hit him, he's standing right in front of the car, blocking the car in this really powerful stance and the music hits with this bomb. Moonlight Graham. And Coster loses it. You saw it, you son of a bitch. You saw, you saw it. it. <laughs> I love it. You saw it. What did I see, Ray? Chisholm, Minnesota. I mean, we were the only ones who saw it. Did you hear the voice too? It's all right to admit it. It's what told me to find you. Did you Did you hear it? And James Earl Jones looks up and says, Go the distance. Yes. Do you know what it means? Yes. What? It means we're going to Minnesota to find Moonlight Graham. <laughs> this is great. It's such a great moment. And I love, too, that Kevin yeah. asks him, well, what do, we, what do we do when we find him? How the hell am I supposed to know that? That's right. That's You're right. You're right. <laughs> that's right that's right it's okay and james old jones gets in the vw bus and they drive off to find moonlight graham and i think yeah. this is a good point to end part one of our exploration of field of dreams of course we'd love to hear your comments about this incredible baseball movie you can visit us on our facebook page just do a search for the cinephiles you can subscribe to the show on itunes youtube stitcher a whole bunch of other places leave your reviews on itunes they help a lot Comments on YouTube are always a lot of fun. If you want to support the show, you can do it on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where you can hear our cinephile shorts and a bunch of more content that we're starting up now. And if you want to buy or stream Field of Dreams, you can do it on cinephiles.net. And if you want to reach me, you can do reach me on Twitter at SR Morris, Instagram, SR Morris One. John, how about you? You can always reach me at the Rokazes on Twitter and on Instagram. You all know that, but please come on and subscribe to my YouTube channel as well, www.youtube.com youtube.com slash john roca says come and get involved and see all the content we got on uh going on over there as well and if you want to follow the show on twitter you can do it at cinna underscore files and on instagram at the cinephiles podcast and i think that is it for this week we will be back next week with part two of field of dreams <laughs>